0: This morning's sermon is from Micah 2, 1 through 13. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, Against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk hotly, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot, in the assembly of the Lord." Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said of house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, their lord at their head. In 2010,
1: 33 Chilean miners were trapped half a mile underground for 69 days. And on the 69th day, as they were finally drawn half a mile up out of the earth into safety, they erupted into celebration, into jubilation, their wives and their families were waiting for them. But then as they moved into the hospital, to the the couple of days that were following, the stories of what it was like began to come out. And as they talked about it, they would talk about the deep deep darkness of being half a mile underground. And they would talk about day 69 when the hole opened up and they were finally drawn to safety. And they'd talk about day 17 when the drill finally made its way into the mine shaft and a word could be sent to them and they could send word back up and they, had, they began to have hope. But the most striking part of their story is how they describe what's going on in their heart in the first 17 days. To a man, they began to ask themselves the question, is there anyone who can save us? Is there anyone who even knows that we're still alive down here? And if they do, is there anything they can do about it? And so this morning, as we celebrate Advent, as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, but also look back at his first coming, we're gonna be asking ourselves the same question that Chilean miners ask themselves. Is there anyone who can save us? And so to answer that question, we're gonna be taking a look at three things. First, we're gonna take a look at our situation and how the word of man fails us. Then we're gonna take some time and talk about the story of the word of God who came to rescue us. And then after that, we're going to talk about how we should respond to that word of God. So first, Micah 2, what is our situation? How has the word of man failed us? Well, it, it begins with a, a window into the dark situation of man. It, it describes his heart this way. It says he is uh, covetous and that he lies in bed at night thinking about how he can take for himself the things that he needs and it occupies his thoughts, and he talks about it at dinner, and he talks about it in the morning, and as soon as he figures out how he can get it, he takes it. And it says that this covetousness, it causes him to seize fields and to take houses and to oppress a man and to take away his inheritance. See, Micah 2 tells us that two questions occupy the heart of man. What do I want, and how can I get it? And it makes sense. In the days of Micah, what was going on is the the upper class was beginning to expand. It was a time of pretty relative prosperity. Things were getting hard on the outside, but internally, things were flourishing, and they were going well. But what was happening is this would create a culture of competition. As people began to get more, they felt the pressure to then get more lands, to then get more houses, to then get more servants. And the reason is they felt like if they got them, it would help them get ahead and it would help them stay ahead. And so, you know what happens next? The powerful, they start to take advantage of the people with less power. But it wasn't just the poor that were getting caught in the crossfire. The poor, I mean, the middle class, they would abuse the poor. But then the upper class, they would come and they would figure out ways to take the houses of the middle class. And then those upper class who had taken houses, the nobles would come and they would figure out how to take their fields. And then the kings would come and they would take the lands from the nobles. And then kings would turn their eyes on other kings and nations would turn their eyes on on other nations. The way you could describe the situation in Micah chapter 2 is two questions were governing the heart of man. What do I want and how can I get it? In verse 1, it captures the principle pretty well. It says, when the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. See, the only question was, Can I get it? And if I could get it, I would take it. We live in a a pretty similar day today. In America, we have this insatiable desire to get more. We feel the constant pressure to have bigger houses, to have better jobs, to get more money, to send our kids to better schools. And inevitably, what this does is it leads us to asking or being preoccupied with the same two questions. What do I want? And how can I get it? And as we ask those questions, we, we often don't consider our neighbors. We often don't really consider our co-workers. We don't even really necessarily consider our families. In America, it's every man for himself. I'll give you a great example. I think you guys know I just wrapped up spending 10 years at J&J. And while I was there, the constant pressure to get ahead was so intense. There was always a cultural pressure to outperform your peers. And the reason you would do that is because there was always another job and there was always another promotion and that if you weren't moving ahead, you were either stuck where you were, or you were liable to get worked out. And so what this would create is you would take your competence, you you would take the gifts that you were given and you would figure out how to use them to take for yourself what the world had taught you that you needed to have. So eventually what would happen is those with more power would take advantage of those with less power. We we would, uh, all of you in corporate America are gonna smile as soon as I say this. We'd have this thing every year, it's called succession planning. It's where all the people leaders would get in a room And we would talk about the talent in our company, and we would talk about their future and and desires we had for them and pathways for them. And That sounds like an awesome thing. On the surface, it sounds like an amazing uh, process to go through. But what would happen is there'd be the meeting before the meeting, where all the factions in the company would get in a room, and they would talk about their people and who the other people were and how they would position their people in light of the other people, And then what was striking about that wasn't just the pre-meeting, but it was the closed door office meeting before that, where you would go into a room with your allies and you would broker. You would talk about your people and their people and who the competition was, and you would align with how you were going to present your people. You see this, it's crazy. What would happen is it would lead to the abuse of people and it would lead to the oppression of people and the neglect. Of their families well, what would happen is our hearts, and I mean I'm saying this as someone who lived through it, our hearts would become preoccupied with what's the next thing? It would dominate our conversations. it would dominate our lunches. It, it, honestly, it would dominate our meetings. I, what I would say wasn't based on what someone needed to hear or what needed to happen for the work. it was based on who had the power. And what would it take for me to get some of what they had or to keep, the little bit that I already had. See, in a, know, in, in a nation like America, and I'll just stick with corporate America for a second. You look around it and you see this story all the time. There's a a LinkedIn post I was reading about a colleague just earlier this week. It it's a a man who today he he's the president of a global multi-billion dollar brand. And this article they're writing about top lessons from the early careers of emerging leaders. I was like, this is gonna be good. I can't wait to see what this says. I get halfway through the article and this one jumps out at me and I mean, literally stopped me in my tracks. It says, if he happens to be home, he makes time to have dinner with his family. Mm. This man's, and I'm not saying anything about needing to travel for work or doing what you got to do for your job or... uh, the, the merits in getting promoted and being great at what you're doing. All I'm saying is that this man's careerism had created a situation for his family where it was a question of whether his, their father and their husband was even going to be home. And when he was home, he would make time to have dinner with them. And what's crazy is this is a big enough story that it makes it into the list of top lessons from emerging leaders. My point's this, is the heart of man asks two questions. What do I want and how can I get it? And then our consciences are okay with oppression and neglect as means to take those things for themselves. But Micah 2 doesn't stop there. It says that our situation is even more dark, not just because of the, word, not just because of the heart of man, but because of the word of man. It says that this culture is in part created by our prophets, by the prophets of our culture, the ones who teach us and who we look to to correct us and encourage us. And just look at verse 6. It says that man doesn't want to hear anything about disgrace. it wasn't here, that tomorrow might not go well. And then verse 11 says the only thing that the heart of man is willing to hear is wine and strong drink. Prosperity and success and things are gonna go well. And so because the heart of man doesn't wanna hear about disgrace and only wants to hear about good things, the prophet of man does exactly what every other man does. Figures out what he has and how to leverage it to get more for himself. And so he becomes really good at telling man what he wants to hear. It's in the days of Micah, this oppression was happening, but at the same time, there were these pseudo-prophets who began to arise. They were the real prophets, the one who would tell you what you needed to hear, but then there were also these other ones, the kings and these priests and maybe nobles, some teachers. And they would tell the people that everything was going to be great, that everything was going to be prosperous, that tomorrow would be better than today, that you could have your best life now. And the best way to get killed in the days of Micah was to tell people what they needed to hear. See, what you see in Micah chapter 2 is that the heart of man controls the word of man. And then the word of man reinforces the heart of man. It's this deep, dark cycle. It's a bit like the darkness that the Chilean miners found themselves in. So what about today? Our day is probably not too much different than the days of Micah. 2 Timothy uh, talks about a time that's coming this way. It says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now that sounds a bit like today. The The self-help industry in 2000, it was already $2.5 billion. But by 2015, it had turned into a $15 billion category. So we, we love accumulating for ourselves people who are gonna tell us exactly what we wanna hear. And in the church, we can be prone to the same thing. We can turn the gospel into morality. We can turn the gospel into a good dose of self-help, into therapy. We can comfort people with a false hope that tomorrow is going to be good, but then we set aside the offense of the cross and we leave people dead in their trespasses. Now look, my point is not to beat up on self-help. My point is not to beat up on training or great people who are great at what they do, helping other people become good at what they do. My point is simply this, it's the situation of man is dark. And it's dark for two reasons. One is our hearts are covetous and our consciences are okay with neglect and oppression as ways to get what we want. And then the second reason it's dark is the word of man can't do anything to help us with it that the prophets of man are only capable of telling us what we want to hear, and that leaves us unconvicted of our sin. And when we're left unconvicted of our sin, we don't have any need for rescue. We're in a deep, dark hole that left to ourselves, we have no way out. And so just then you quickly realize that if we're going to be rescued, That if we're going to be dragged out of the deep, dark hole, then we need an external word. We need a word that'll come from the outside. We need a word that will do for us what the word of man wouldn't do, can't do, that would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. I love the way one theologian puts it. He says, what I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel, Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? So this morning, I want to tell you the facts. As we look back at the first coming of Jesus and it creates in us anticipation for a second coming, I want to lay out the facts. Exactly when the word of man failed us, the word of God came to rescue us. That exactly when we were lost and without hope in the world, the light broke into the darkness. So who's the word of God, and what does he do for us? Well, take a look at back in Micah chapter 2, and you'll see in verses 1 through 11, you get this rhythm, this like rolling tide of oppression and false prophecy, of covetousness and false teaching, of seizing houses and then acknowledgement of prosperity, and wave after wave, it's darkness and despair, and then... The light breaks into the darkness. In verses 12 and 13, in just two verses, the Lord says, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands and I myself am gonna rescue my people. See, at the end of Micah chapter two, we're left with a promise where the Lord says that he himself is gonna come from the outside and rescue his people. And then that's exactly what we see happen. 700 years later, After the days of Micah, the Apostle John records what happens this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, exactly when we were stuck in our darkness, when we were without hope, the Word of God comes. But he doesn't come as a divine lecture. He doesn't come just to tell us what we need to hear. He comes as a person. And the reason he comes as a person is because not only has the word of man failed us, but our hearts are broken. We need someone who can do for us what we can't do for ourself. We He comes as a person because we need someone who can make us new. And John chapter one tells us that this word of God that came, his name is Jesus. So when he comes... When Jesus came the first time, what exactly did he do for us? Well, again, Micah chapter 2 verse 13, it describes a situation as when the Lord promises that he's going to come, it sounds like his people are besieged, that they're stuck inside a city and you get the sense that it's the darkness, it's their own covetousness, it's their own false prophecy that has them stuck. But then it says that one is coming who will open up the breach. That just like the Chilean miners who are stuck underground, one is coming who's going to make a way out. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He steps down into history, into creation, and the first thing that he does is he tells us the truth. He tells us exactly what the word of man could not, and that's what we need to hear as opposed to what we want to hear. Let's go back to the example of careerism, you know, where we take our competence and we leverage it to take for ourselves from other people what we think we need. What does Jesus say when he comes? In Matthew 20, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus comes as the Word of God and then speaks directly into our heart and calls out, calls attention to, sheds light on our sin. But the good news of that is what it does is it creates in us the need to be rescued. it causes us to realize that we need one who can come and will make us new. If you think back to the miners for a second. Imagine if the drill uh, came in one day, they got a message from up top that there's an acknowledgement that they were stuck and it created in them an acknowledgement that there was no way out. What good would it have been if no one could rescue them? If that word had come, but they were stuck where they were. And it's the same way with us. What, what good would it have been if Jesus came and convicted us of our sin, but then made no way for us to be rescued? And so he doesn't stop there. He, the next thing Jesus does, and this is why it's important that he came as a person, that the word of God didn't come as a lecture, but that he stepped down into history is because he brought us grace. That Jesus, after demonstrating our need for rescue, he then rescues us. And he does this in a few ways. The, The first thing he does is he lives a perfect life that we're not able to live. Think back to careerism. What does the Lord do when he comes? He's the king of heaven, but he steps down into creation and he serves his people. He lays down his life for them and ransoms them. And then he does a second thing. He tears open a hole in the wall of our slavery by being torn apart on the cross. See, we, because of our covetousness, our ambition, our sins like careerism and neglect and oppression, it it leaves us only able to be subjects of God's wrath. But... Life for us, rescue for us means relationship with God. And it's because He's the source of our life, but He's also the one who's capable of making us new. He's the one who can raise us from the death of our sin. And so, Jesus, the Word of God, when He comes, He not only convicts us of our sin, but then He goes to the cross. He bears the penalty that's due for our sin. He absorbs within himself all of the wrath and animosity of God that's stored up for us so that it's exhausted. Then he reconciles us to God. He walks us back over and restores us to relationship. And then he ransoms us for himself so that not only are we restored, but we no longer belong to the darkness. We belong to the king. We we belong back to God and his family. See, in other words, the word of God comes and makes a way for us. But again, we'll stick with the analogy. Imagine if the Chilean miners had gotten the message that they were stuck, and then a hole is opened up, but there's no way to drag them back up to the surface. The hole's open, but they're left in the darkness. And it's the same way with us. What good is it if Jesus comes and convicts us of sin and then makes a way for us but leaves us powerless to experience the life that he's bought for us? And so the word of God does one more thing. After going to the cross and making open a way, what does he do? He subjects himself to death. And then after dying, he rises from the dead. And the reason that he dies and then rises from the dead is so that we can experience new life, that in union with him, our hearts can be made new and we can know something other than the darkness that we've been living in. See, Jesus comes as the word of God, not just to tell us what we need to hear, but then to rescue us, to actually draw us up out of our darkness. Listen, life's hard. And our hearts are broken. And it creates in us an incredible pressure to get ahead. The world teaches us that there are certain things we need to do to maximize our lives. And maybe it's we need a certain job or our family has to be just a certain way. Maybe we need more vacations and more wine and more sun. Honestly, maybe we just live life confused and frustrated and discouraged. But what we realize is in those moments, we don't need someone who will tell us what we want to hear. We don't need someone who will give us a new trick to try or will give us a list of platitudes. What we need is someone who will tell us what we need to hear. We need someone who will tell us the truth, who himself is the truth. We need someone who can atone for us and restore us. We need someone who can Give us the power to live new lives, who can create in us new hearts. See, what Micah 2 creates in us is the realization that what we need is the Word of God, who we need is Jesus. And so I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you believe that God actually stepped down into history and put on flesh? And that God coming in the flesh actually chose to die. Do you actually believe that a dead man rose from the grave three days later? Because if you believe that this morning, then the question is, where do you turn for rescue? That when life is hard and there's pressure and it 's telling you that you need to take from other people to get what you need, do you turn to the word of man who will tell you exactly what you want to hear, or do you turn to Jesus, the one who will make you new? See this morning we 're called to to turn to jesus we 're called as people who believe that he came that he died, and that he rose from the dead, and that he did that to buy us back for himself. And so since we believe that, how should we respond? How should we respond to the coming of the word of God? Well, verses 12 and 13 in Micah, it describes a situation where the Lord calls himself a shepherd. He says that he gathers his people. He, He doesn't just leave them in the darkness, but he calls them. And then right after calling them to himself, he describes himself as a king And he says that he himself leads them up through the breach, out of the city, out of their slavery, into the light. See, Jesus comes and actually rescues us. He doesn't leave us in our circumstances, but he actually changes our hearts. He he actually changes our circumstances. I'll, uh, I'll just go back to a quick example, careerism. The world teaches us that the best way to maximize our life is to take for ourselves everything that we can, get as much as we can. And then this gives rise to ambition. And then we become consumed and paralyzed by an obsession to get promoted. And then out of this obsession, we take all the gifts that are given to us and we figure out how to leverage them to take power for ourselves. We manipulate our employees. We pander to people who have power. We neglect our families. We steal credit. And then when we get promoted, the preachers of the world, they applaud it. They write LinkedIn posts about it. But then Jesus comes. We hear the gospel and he calls us to himself. And then what does he do? He teaches us that The truth about our careerism, about our hearts and about how we're designed. He he teaches us that our work was designed as a means for worship. That our gifts were given to serve other people. And then in his death and his resurrection, he turns to us, he forgives us. He restores us. And then he begins the process of making us new. And all of a sudden we begin to find ourselves with this awakening realization that our competence was designed not to serve our ambition, but to serve other people. Suddenly we realize that we can be part of restoring the world, not just tearing it apart. See, Jesus steps into our careerism through the gospel, calls us to himself, calls us out of that darkness, and then finally into worship. You get the picture of a king coming who calls his people to himself and then through his word leads them up out of the darkness of their situation. I'll give you just one more example. How about parenting? This is a touchy subject. The world teaches us that our children are commodities. The world says that our children are toys. Toys. That they exist to make our Christmas cards cute, they exist to give us dreams for the future, and they exist to give us a second shot at success where we experience failure. And then just like all other toys, when the maintenance becomes too much, we neglect them. When they become annoying, we manipulate them. When they become a nuisance, we do the efficient work of correcting their behavior, but we leave undone the messy and long work of shepherding their hearts. But then Jesus comes, and he gives us the gospel, and in his gospel, he teaches us that our children belong to the Lord, and that they're given to us as a means for worship, and that we get the privilege of participating in the nurture of a little image of God who very well one day may be used to rescue the nations. And then he looks at us and he forgives us. He restores us. And then he begins to create in us a new heart. And just like that, we find ourselves with a new heart that's able to love our children. We find ourselves called up into the reality of discipleship and into talking with our children of the Lord as we walk and as we sit and and as we lie down. We find ourselves called up into the joy of the messy work of shepherding their hearts and preparing for them a life of worship and preparing for them a life of mission. See, my my point is, is not to talk about careerism or parenting. It's to say that Jesus actually rescues us. There's tons of of stories like this. There's our marriages, our streets, our friends, our community, our careers, the way we think about our city. See, Jesus wants to make all things new. And so what does that look like today? Very practically, how do we as a people who believe that respond to this word of God that came? Well, the way Jesus calls us today is out of Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, he calls us to bring not our acts, not our deeds, not our righteousness, but our weariness and our burdens and our desires and the things that excite us in our labor. He calls us to bring all of ourself. And then what do we do with it? Today, he calls us to bring it to his word, to literally bring it to the Bible. It's a very practical way we can respond to Jesus today is you can do the community Bible reading. You can find 15 minutes every day to sit quietly Be honest with Jesus about what's going on in your heart. And then turn and read the scriptures for the day. And then as you read them, answer the questions that are in the guide. Just remember when you read it and you answer them that he's the word of God. Sometimes he's going to talk with you about things you want to talk about. And if you're like me, sometimes he's going to talk with you about things you don't want to talk about. But you come and you bring all of who you are and you sit with him in his word and you let the Holy Spirit convict you and then you let the gospel forgive you and restore you. And then as he calls you into new life, into a new heart, you take what the application that you have and you actually go do it. See, this morning, if... uh, If you're wrestling with how do I spend time with Jesus in his word, if you need help with the community Bible reading, just come find me after the service or go to any of the elders. We would love to help you look at and think about what it looks like to respond to Jesus daily. But listen, it's a little thing, but it's a meaningful thing. Today, Jesus calls us to come by bringing our hearts and our lives to his word and sitting with him in his word. So this morning we saw how the word of man fails us. But just exactly when we were without hope, the word of God comes and rescues us. That Jesus steps down into history and does for us what the word of man can't do. He tells us the truth and then he makes us new. Jesus is the word of God who opens up the breach and then goes up before us. He came once before. He's calling us to come today. And he's coming back soon. Let's pray. Lord, you are the one who's broken into the darkness. You are the the light that's coming in this morning that gives us tremendous joy because we're people who have one who's done for us what we can't do for ourselves. We have one who will tell us the truth, and we have in you one who's atoned for us and who will forgive us and who's faithful to restore us and to make us new. And So this morning, Jesus, as we live between the already and not yet, between the come, your first coming where you've already redeemed us, but you haven't yet come to make all things completely new, we pray that you'd make us a people of your word, that you'd make us a people that bring our lives and our hearts to you in submission. And Jesus, we pray you would make us a people who are being made new. Jesus, this morning, we pray that you would hurry and come back quickly. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.